Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We're joined today by Richard Brookheiser. He is a senior editor at National Review. He's a columnist for American history and the author of 13 books, including John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court, Founder's Son, A Life of Abraham Lincoln, and James Madison. He lives in New York City, and he is joining us today to discuss his latest or one of his most recent books, Give Me Liberty, A History of America's Exceptional Idea. Richard, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ian, for having me. So this is a kind of a a history of American uh, liberty as a concept, and you look at 13 different kinds of documents uh, of some kind or another. And uh, how did you get the idea to approach American history and the idea of liberty in this fashion? I think this is one of the book ideas that came from my wife. Uh, she's given me several. Uh, my other source for book ideas is an old friend, Akil Amar, who's a professor at Yale Law School. And I think Akil has given me two and my wife has given me three. So she's out in the lead. Uh, This was her third idea. And I was stimulated to agree with her by the debate over nationalism, which was very hot uh, during the Trump years and continues to be so. What is nationalism? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing here and a bad thing elsewhere? Is it good or bad everywhere? You're you're certainly, you and all your listeners are certainly familiar with this kind of talk. It's it's pretty common. And so what I thought of doing is saying, okay, what is American nationalism? How could we define it? And I thought our unique characteristic as a nation was our concern with liberty. And this is something that's been preoccupying us for 400 years. It even precedes the independence of the country. It goes back to the the earliest times of colonialism and settlement. And so I looked for instances that would illustrate this, uh, steps in the advance of this idea, different permutations of it. And each one of these instances had a document attached to it. And some of these we all know, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Gettysburg Address, the Constitution. Uh, Others are obscure. I think one of the most obscure is number two on my list, the Flushing Remonstrance. Very few people, very few people have heard of that, but I think it was of monumental importance. And some of these documents are public pronouncements. They were issued by uh, people in authority or by, by governmental groups. Others were 
popular documents. They come from the bottom up. Some of them were documents of protest. As I said, some of them are famous, others are obscure, some of them are beautifully written, others are just kind of humdrum or clumsy. But they all made important points. They all laid down important markers in, a, in America's concern with liberty. And they start in 1619. I didn't know when I was writing this book that the New York Times was also preparing to release the 1619 project. And of course, their 1619 goes back to the arrival or the purchase of the first uh, African-American slaves in the Jamestown colony, which happened in the summer of 1619. And so they identify that as the start of the American story. Uh, the American story is a story of, of slavery and race. And that is certainly an important chapter in our story. And I do uh, look, at, look at that Jamestown example and, and how it played out over time. But something else happened in 1619. It happened before those 20 Africans were uh, unloaded for purchase at Jamestown. It happened earlier in the summer. And that was the first meeting of the General Assembly of the Jamestown Colony. Uh, the colony goes back to 1607. Uh, it had had a very rocky start, a number of disasters. Uh, the first colon, colonists, settlers, arrived in the middle of a terrible drought that had been going on for years and would continue for years more. So starvation was always a risk. Sometimes relations with uh, the local Indians or Native Americans were good. Sometimes they were terrible. Uh, there was a lot that happened, much of it bad. But in 1619, there was a new regime in England. They sent a new governor over to run the colony. And part of his mandate was to change the way it was run on the ground in Jamestown. Uh, he was to summon a general assembly, which would be elected in each of the boroughs uh, that the colony consisted of. Boroughs is an old English geographical term, the equivalent of counties in America today. So each of these boroughs could elect two, bur two representatives who were called Burgesses, and they would be the majority of the General Assembly. It would also include the governor. It would also include his council of advisors. Now, the governor and the council of advisors were picked back in London but the Burgesses were picked in, in Jamestown itself. So this was the beginning of American self-rule, which was my first instance of liberty, the liberty of people who live here to choose, if not all their own governors, many of them, and to have a voice in their own affairs. So that was number one. Uh, I thought of 11 more. I originally had 12, and then... Uh, then I decided to add a 13th. I won't tell you which the added 13th was because I don't want to suggest that it's of lesser importance than the other 12, but I have a 13 in total. They go up to 1987 with Ronald Reagan's speech, the Berlin Wall, where he uh, challenged Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, to tear it down. So that's a, a, a brief 
overview of my book and what I was trying to do and and a little bit about the, the first episode, the first document. So when you think about liberty, is it a uh, is it essentially a European import or is it something uniquely American formed here in America as a concept? Well, certainly the Jamestown General Assembly was inspired by the Parliament of England. Uh, one of the members of the General Assembly, the man who was the, the clerk for the whole meeting, which lasted for uh, four days, uh, he'd been a member of Parliament. And he introduced some, he, he was probably responsible for introducing some parliamentary forms into their proceedings. Uh, every proposal that they voted on had to be read three times. Uh, this is something that happens in Parliament. They decided to do this in Jamestown. The reason for doing that is so everybody knows what he's voting on. You know, you can't you can't slip something through at the last minute. It has to be read three times so everybody's clear about about um, what's up for a vote. So so there were there were a few elements like that which were uh, imitative of of the English Parliament. So you could certainly uh, say that that is an English import. But as it takes root in America, as it continues in colonial times, as it's adopted by other uh, of England's colonies here, and as their experience of self-rule matures, uh, we, we finally get uh, the development, which is most eloquently expressed in the Declaration of Independence, that this concept of self-rule, it's not just because the English do it in Parliament. It's not just because we have these rights as Englishmen. In fact, the reason that we have a right to self-rule is that it is embedded in our nature and that our nature is the creation of a creator. We call the creator in the Declaration of Independence, also called nature's God. And the importance of this, you know, we can talk about the theology or, or lack of it that Jefferson and his uh, colleagues may have had, but the importance of this is that our rights are not something that men make. Uh, they come from outside us. Men did not make our rights, therefore men cannot take them away. They are embedded in our nature. They are... Uh, they, they exist in us at our birth and throughout our lives. I mean, obviously, history is full of tyrants and tyrannies and despotisms of all sorts. Uh, certainly more of those than there have been free countries, free societies. But the history doesn't make them right. The prevalence doesn't make them right. It is in our nature to, to aspire to freedom uh, to have it, to yearn for it, and to maintain it if we are lucky enough and fortunate enough to achieve it. So this is your articulating a view that was held uh, since the Enlightenment by some and echoed and expostulated by people like Jefferson, but it's also your own personal view. Is that right? Well, yes, I think Jefferson was right. Uh, there are lots of Enlightenment ideas. Uh, there were Enlightened despots in various countries in Europe. Uh, Peter the Great 
if you stretch a point, could be called enlightened. There were, there were certainly other uh, rulers at various times, and uh, Frederick the Great uh, could be called an enlightened despot. Joseph II in the Austro, uh, the Austrian Empire, and, and these these men didn't tolerate self-rule. I mean, what what they did and said was law. But uh, yes, there there is another. Uh, Enlightenment tradition. There, there are different ideas that percolated in the Enlightenment, and and Jefferson and his fellow Americans are certainly part of that. Uh, it, but it also, you know, I, I'm trying to show in this book. I've got, you know, these 13 episodes, and they cover various phases of our history, um, various uh, aspects of liberty. But I, I do try to show whenever I can how these different episodes inform each other. Um, the Jamestown experience gives us, I say, I would argue self-rule. That's in 1619. Uh, in 1657, we have a very important statement of religious liberty, and that is the Flushing Remonstrance. Uh, and this was not in, in British North America. This was in New Netherland, uh, colony of Holland, which, which would become New York when the English finally conquer it in 1664. But uh, during the time that it was a Dutch colony, uh, the last director general of the colony, Peter Stuyvesant, was a, in many ways, a capable and effective man, but he was also a bigot. Uh, he, he was a bigot and a tyrant. It was his way or the highway. And, and one of his ways was that he was, he was the son of a Dutch reform minister, and he thought Calvinism was the only a way for people to live. So he uh, he harried subjects of his who were not Calvinists. He went went after Lutherans. He went after Jews. He was told by his bosses back in Holland to cut this out. Uh, the colony was a business venture. It was run by the Dutch West India Company. And they told him, they said, look, we've got investors and directors who are Lutherans and Jews, so you can't oppressed Lutherans and Jews across the ocean in New Amsterdam. So he, he backed off when he got those orders. Uh, but then a, another religion shows up in his domain, that's Quakers, uh, who were in the 17th century a new religion. They'd arisen in England during the English Civil War. And they were, they were like Rastafarians in the 17th century. I mean, they just seemed so weird. They would not the men would not take off their hats in the presence of their social superiors. They wouldn't use different forms of address depending on who they were speaking to. Uh, women could preach in Quaker meetings equally with men. Uh, it was a very, you know, a very out there uh, form of worship and a form of Christianity, and Stuyvesant didn't like it at all. And when the first Quakers showed up, he, uh, he sent the first shipload of them away. Uh, two women stayed behind. He, he arrested them, threw them out of the colony. Uh, another Quaker man appears. He arrests him and beats him almost to death until, until finally uh, one of his subjects says, please, you know, let this guy go. You know, what good is it putting him on a work detail if you're going to beat him to death? Uh, and then finally, he gets a remonstrance, a protest from 30 men 
who live in New Amsterdam, the, the future New York City. They live in a village called Flushing, which still exists. It's a neighborhood of, of Queens now. And these men uh, sent a letter to Stuyvesant saying, we cannot go along with your anti-Quaker moves. I mean, you tell us that, that uh, no hospitality can be extended to Quakers. If Quakers show up, they have to be turned away. We cannot do this because we would do unto others as we would have others do unto us. Our Savior saith, this is the law and the prophets. So they're telling him, and they're not, they're not speaking as Quakers speaking up for themselves. They are uh, pious or devout men in Flushing saying, we won't treat Quakers the way you want us to because our religion tells us not to. So it's, it's not only uh, a statement from below, an act of defiance of political power, it's a statement for religious liberty coming from religious conviction. And that's what I find so moving about the Flushing Remonstrance. Uh, the other moving thing about it is that six of the men who signed it couldn't write their names. They just made marks. But I think they left a very important marker. So uh, we had uh, Jamestown gives us a self-rule. The Flushing Remonstrance is a move towards religious liberty. Uh, in colonial times, uh, there, there was a third instance, the trial of John Peter Zenger. He was a, a New York journalist who was attacking uh, the local colonial governor of New York. Uh, imprisoned for seditious libel, and uh, his lawyer uh, gets him acquitted, basically by arguing for for jury nullification. He tells he tells the jury, "Look, uh, uh, this is a liberty. We must have the liberty to complain. If we can't complain about misrule, we aren't we aren't free men." So they return a verdict of, of not guilty. But then. Uh, beginning with the Declaration of Independence and, and continuing after it, you, you begin to get efforts to aggregate these individual liberties, to see that each of these is an aspect of a, a larger thing. Uh, Jefferson says that, that we're endowed with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that word among is kind of startling, I think. I mean, you, you, you would think life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that, that covers an awful lot. But he says, those are just three. You know, among them are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I'm not even going to go through the whole list. You know, here are three of the most important. Let me, let me stick those in. But there are, there are others which, which I'm not going to enumerate here. That's a very sweeping claim. And it, uh, it, it places liberty in a height of, of great uh, preeminence, I think. So in going back to some of the early examples, especially the, the flushing remonstrance example, it seems to me that um, definitely this is a uniquely what we think of perhaps as a or I might describe as a uniquely American style of uh, responding to potential religious conflict. And you've got, as you note, a one group that is not arguing for principle simply because it benefits them personally, but rather it will benefit people who do not share their faith. 
And right. so this kind of disinterested, as it were, uh, not uninterested, but disinterested, detached, uh, no, no personal stake per se in the outcome, although it could benefit them in the future. Um, that to me seems to be a, 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 what is particularly intriguing about this example, um, because it is an application of a general principle of tolerance that is it predates John Locke and his famous um, letter concerning toleration and the arguments uh, while what's going on back in Europe is continual, uh, or at least uh, recently had been uh, wars of religion. And so this seems to be a kind of a method of reconciling conflict and trying to put it aside and get on with life. That to me seems to be a uniquely American style of resolving things. Right. And you see it, you know, you see it in, in many of the other instances I, I cite. The, the, the trial of John Peter Zanger, this, this happened in New York. It's the 18th century. Uh, New York has, has been part of the British Empire for, uh, for 80 some years. Uh, and this journalist is being tried for seditious libel. He's been criticizing the governor of New York. But the lawyer who springs him, the lawyer who gets him off, they brought him in from Philadelphia, right? He was he was the best lawyer at the time in all of British North America, and his supporters in New York hired this guy uh, to come to New York and make this argument. So, uh, you know, whether whether Zanger stays in prison or not, it's not not any skin off the nose of a lawyer from Philadelphia. But nevertheless, uh, he comes and he he argues that this is an issue of importance for the jury for all New Yorkers, but but also for everyone in British North America. And in fact, the records of, of that trial, they get printed uh, in Boston. They also get printed in London. So they go around the Atlantic world. They go around the English-speaking world of its time. Later on, uh, my, my fifth instance is uh, the constitution of a group called the New York Manumission Society. Uh, this is a, a group that comes together after the Revolutionary War, 1785, in New York City. Uh, New York State is a slave state. Uh, I wanted to make one of my slavery-related examples in the North, just to remind people that slavery was not a Southern institution only. Uh, New York City in the late 18th century had more enslaved people in it than any American city except for Charleston. Uh, the economy of New York as a colony had been very bound uh, with slavery in the West Indies. Uh, New York was a place where a lot of West Indian sugar got refined. New York was also a, a place where supplies for the sugar islands of the West Indies were, were grown and processed. Uh, so, so this was a colony and now a state which was very involved in the American practice of slavery. And after the Revolutionary War, a group comes together to end this. And they're motivated uh, partly by Revolutionary War principles. A number of the men in it are veterans of that struggle and leaders in that struggle. Uh, they include uh, a, a young Alexander Hamilton. They include John Jay. Uh, they include, uh, you know, other movers and shakers in uh, New York establishment politics. And then the other people in this group are uh, Quakers, 
their religion by this time has decided that Quakers may not own slaves. Uh, if you continue to own slaves, you will be kicked out of the out of the meeting. So uh, Quakerism has become an anti-slavery religion by the time of the late. 18th century. And so you, you have this odd couple alliance of uh, political players and uh, these mostly non-political believers who are anti-slavery. And they get together, they found uh, a society to lobby for manumissions in New York State to encourage people to free their own slaves. They're also lobbying for laws to limit the practice of slavery and ultimately to end it in New York State, which happens by 1827. Uh, by, that, by that year, the last slaves in New York State are freed as a result of a law passed largely because of the lobbying of the Manumission Society. So, you know, I picked this example because it, it relates to slavery in a northern state. And again, as you said, these are not uh, slaves themselves or former slaves themselves lobbying against the institution. Now, uh, many brave men and women did that, but these were uh, white, free Americans who decided this is, this is something that's contrary uh, to our beliefs and contrary to the principles of this newly independent country and this but now free state, no longer a colony. So we shouldn't continue to put up with this. Let's, let's end it. Let's start the process of ending it. Let's start it now. And it takes 42 years. You know, and you can look at that and say, well, that wasn't very quick. But you can also look at that and say, it, it did get the job done. And so, so by the early 19th century, New York moves from the column of slavery and bondage uh, to, to the column of, of liberty. So that, uh, I thought was worthy of note and, and, uh, and interesting as a kind of a process example of how, how some of these achievements get done. And of course that was one of the big debates uh, during the early national period, all the way up to, uh, the civil war, which is if, uh, manumission is going to be embraced, how should it be done? Is it immediate or is it gradual? Which sounds kind of like a strange um, antiquarian debate to us, perhaps. But at the time, there was really a concern about how former slaves could be integrated into the American society and polity. Some people, like even Tocqueville, figured, uh, feared a race war. And, mm. and so it would seem to me that uh, the example that you've chosen with this uh, highlights the different reasonable concerns of people at the time for how are you going to actually implement such a, a spirit of liberty as it would apply to this institution, which is well entrenched and could even break up the union. Right. And, you know, it's interesting that the, uh, I suppose you could call the New Yorkers moderate in the sense that they were not proposing to get rid of slavery right away or at one fell swoop. They were, they were gradualists. They were going to nip away at it. But uh, they also never considered colonization, which was a kind of daydream that a lot of Americans had. Oh, well, 
you know, isn't it unfortunate that we've 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 brought all these people in slavery over from Africa? Maybe what we should do is send them back, you know, and then maybe maybe if we bought all of them from their owners and sent them back to Africa, that would be the way to solve the problem. Well, the there and there was a colonization society formed, and and one result of that is the nation of Liberia, which still exists today. That that began as the African settlement for freed American slaves. But of course, the number of freed men and women who were sent back to Liberia never uh, never was more than a, a small percentage of, of the number of, of uh, enslaved people who, who lived here. So the New Yorkers, maybe, maybe being a little realistic, they, they never consider that as an option. Another interesting thing about uh, about the New York process is it, it, the, a big milestone, 1799, uh, a member of the Manumission Society, he's the first president of it, John Jay, the great revolutionary diplomat and spymaster, uh, also Federalist Paper author, he's elected governor of New York, uh, and he signs in 1799, he signs a bill, becomes a law, that that establishes the timetable for finally ending slavery in the state. And it says by 1827, the last slaves uh, will, will be freed. And But what you had is there was a spike in manumissions after that. And, you know, when you think about it, it's easy to figure out. If, if everybody knows there's a law in the books that says slavery is going to end by 1827, then owners have an incentive uh, to make deals with their enslaved persons because the, you know, the temptation to run away just got a lot higher. I mean, obviously, this institution is on its last legs. It's going to be gone in a generation. So, so uh, owners did make deals with the, the, the persons that they own to say, well, all right, look, if if you if you work for me for five more years or three more years or two more years, then I'll then I'll free you early. You know, please don't run away before that time. Uh, of course, there were many owners who held on to the bitter end. I'm not saying everybody did this, but you did see this spike in manumissions, also a spike in runaways. So so the uh, you know the prospect of the final end of the thing, even though it, it was still a couple decades off. Uh, Hastened, uh, hastened the the ending of it day to day. So I'd like to turn to another area that some of your examples deal with, which is America's role in the world, uh, the United States as a nation state, and how some of your examples grapple with the idea of liberty and and efforts to export it or concerns about doing so. Um, three of your examples. Uh, Reagan's speech at the Berlin Wall, FDR's fireside chat back in 1940, and going back to the early 18, uh, 19th century with the Monroe Doctrine. Um, could you select one of those and we could talk about this ongoing debate about what role America does or should have uh, abroad? Sure. Well, and I'll, you know, I'll just say of all three of these documents that, that they represent a, a widening of our area of concern. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine addresses itself to the Western Hemisphere 
uh, FDR's fireside chat about the arsenal of democracy in 1940 says, we will not let Britain be defeated by Nazi Germany. Uh, we will, we will get, supply Britain, we will guarantee by our supplies that Britain can, can withstand the Nazi challenge. So the, the area of our concern has now been widened to include uh, the United Kingdom. And then Reagan, speaking of the Berlin Wall, uh, he's addressing Eastern Europe. So that, that's another uh, extension of our concern. And I just say that to show that these three documents are both idealistic and practical. Uh, they, are, they are not biting off more than they can chew. You know, these, these are, are issued by three different presidents, James Monroe, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan. And each of these men is very mindful of, of what America can do in the world at the time that, uh, that, he, makes, that he, he makes one of these statements. So let me uh, interrupt you. Sure. Can I interrupt you right there in regard to Reagan? Because as you note, uh, it wasn't obvious to everybody, even some of his own supporters and staff, that what he was doing was necessarily so insightful, right? Uh, oh, right. He got... Um, I mean, there's a wonderful account by the by the man who wrote that speech, who, who's an old uh, acquaintance of mine, a man named Peter Robinson, and uh, and as he tells the story, Reagan uh, got some pushback from his own administration on the text. They they wanted to soften it. They did not want his speech to include the direct challenge to Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, come here and tear down this wall. They didn't want Reagan saying that because they thought that would be too uh, aggressive, too embarrassing. And, and twice they lobbied to get that sentence out of there. The, the second time was in the car on his way to the Brandenburg Gate to give the speech. And he said, you know, the, the boys at state are going to hate me, but I want to say that, so I'm going to keep that in. So, yeah, there, there was division within his administration. Uh, there, there always is. I mean, the story of the Monroe Doctrine uh, back in the 1820s, uh, there was also division in James Monroe's cabinet. You know, what do we, what do we want to say about the Western Hemisphere? Uh, what, was, what was happening was that the Spanish Empire had, was breaking apart. Uh, Spain would be able to hold on to Cuba for for decades more, and also also the Philippines, but Spain's domination of Latin America was ending, and most of, of, of Latin America, from Mexico down to Patagonia, uh, was was freeing itself from Spanish control, and uh, the European powers uh, did not like that. Uh, Europe had just emerged from a quarter century of wars. Uh, uh, inspired by the French Revolution. And uh, the final uh, champion of these revolutionary wars had been Napoleon. All right, and he's, he's a very mixed bag. Uh, you know, how revolutionary is he? But by his time, the French Revolution has become about Napoleon and his family. But still, you know, finally he's beaten. Uh, the powers of Europe think, ah, oh, we have uh, put that genie back in its bottle and thrown that bottle to the bottom of the sea. And then uh, here, Latin America uh, is freeing itself. Is, is this the same old spirit 
stirring. Can we tolerate this? And so there were there were fears in the United States uh, that that Europeans would try and somehow reestablish, uh, if not Spanish control over these new countries, uh, monarchical governments. Uh, France had a scheme to uh, send Bourbon princes uh, to the different uh, new nations of Latin America and and make them the local rulers. And so, you know, in Monroe's cabinet, there's discussion of this. Uh, he, uh, James Monroe, he had a very good cabinet. His secretary of state was John Quincy Adams, who would succeed him as president. His secretary of war was John Calhoun, uh, who at that point in his career was an American nationalist. He was not yet uh, the theorist of, of nullification and ultimately disunion. But, uh, you know, and, and, and he and Adams and Monroe, they, they really try to hash it out. How definite should we be? Uh, Calhoun is worried about um, provoking the European powers. Is that going to uh, uh, provoke them to, to something belligerent? Uh, should we make a statement in conjunction with Great Britain? Uh, Great Britain kind of got the ball rolling. They had approached us. They'd approached our um, ambassador uh, in Britain with the idea of a joint statement. You know, Britain and the United States would get together and say, we don't want Europe to interfere in the former Spanish Empire. And uh, John Quincy Adams uh, makes the point, no, we, should, we shouldn't do that. We don't want to be like a little the phrase he used was a cockboat in the wake of the British man of war, you know, a little dinghy trailing after a British uh, battleship. Uh, if we if we make a statement, we should make it uh, on our own behalf and, and independently. And and this is uh, this is finally what President Monroe does uh, in a message to Congress. And uh, it's it's a prudent statement. He says we are, you know, we are certainly sympathetic to the struggles for liberty that are going on in Europe. Uh, the Greeks were rebelling against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there were um, uh, liberals in Spain who were trying to trim the powers of the monarchy there. Uh, but he said, uh, we, will, we will not interfere uh, in any direct way with those struggles in the old world. But by the same token, we would consider it an unfriendly act if old world powers try to interfere uh, in, the, in the newly found liberties of Americans, of, of people in the Western Hemisphere. So he's, he's, he's just laying down a marker to European powers. Uh, don't do this. If you do this, we will consider this an unfriendly act. And, you know, he knows, of course, that Britain, for reasons of its own, doesn't want this to happen. I mean, these are mercantile reasons. Uh, Britain wants to be able to trade with these newly independent countries, which it hadn't been able to do so long as Spain owned them. So Monroe and everybody else in, in Washington, D.C. knows that the, the British Navy is going to be tacitly uh, supporting this American policy. But he's careful not to say, uh, not to do this uh, along, along with Britain. He just wants this to be an American statement of American principles. And so I think that's, uh, it's an interesting example of a fusion of, 
of prudence and realism with a commitment to liberty and with a recognition that it's, you know, that it isn't just an American product. Uh, it can also be uh, something that other people aspire to and that other people may have achieved to some degree, and it can be in our interest to uh, sustain them. So you refer to uh, the presence of prudence uh, in several instances, and I'm curious about a larger issue that's not really addressed specifically by your book, but I'm curious what you think about this. Historians, of course, uh, break down into different camps about what they think are the uses of history. Certainly, we want to understand why the past happened, not only what happened, but why it happened as it did, and what were the choices that were available to the actors. But some historians, in addition to those concerns, think that the past can help instruct us on how to act in the present and plan for the future. And I'm curious what you think about that and whether any of this work could be instructive to Americans now, not only elected officials, but everyday Americans? Well, I think the most important point that I want to make, and we touched on this earlier earlier in the talk, it's not just that liberty is an American idea or one that Americans have, have found important. It's true. It's also true. It, it is an aspect of our nature as men, as men and women. It's not the whole story. There's a lot else that goes on in the human heart and the human psyche and human history. But the desire for liberty and the entitlement to it are, are true. It is, it is wrong to hold people in slavery, in bondage, under despotism. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. It's happened a lot in human history. It's going on now. Uh, you, you can look at the globe. You can look at the news. You can see lots of examples of it, of it now. But that doesn't make it right. And, and I, I think the most important point that I, would, that I would hope people would take from this book is that uh, Americans have, have got hold of something that is true. And it's also not, uh, it's also not self-perpetuating. I mean, once you know that it's true, you're not done. You know, it's not like, oh, all right, I recognize that. Okay, so let, let me get a beer. Uh, it always has to be upheld. It always has to be maintained. It can always be chipped away. It can always slide away. Uh, there are, you know, there are always forces from inertia to actual malice uh, that that may undermine it. And so you have to understand it. You, you can't simply enjoy it. You also have to understand it. And, and I, I would hope that, that the variety of examples that I give and the variety of people who were involved in, 
in these these documents and in these struggles. I mean, some of them were famous, some of them were uh, we would call great. Others were ordinary. Others were ordinary men, ordinary men and women who at particular moments stepped up to sign something or to say something. Uh, you you don't have to be uh, you don't have to be someone on a presidential placemat. Most of us are never going to get there. Uh, you can be an ordinary person and a very ordinary person, and yet uh, take a stand that will be of monumental importance. And I hope that will 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 interest people and perhaps inspire them. Well, the book is entitled "Give Me Liberty." A History of America's Exceptional Idea, and we've been joined today by its author, Richard Brookhise. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ian, for having me.